It's like no, this is like this is when you go home and your girlfriend's there and like she was she won't look at you and she won't talk to you and like you can't figure out what you did wrong because you're a dumbass. <laughs> That's the British Empire. You're the British Empire in that scenario. <laughs> Well, excuse me, Aaron. I wish I knew what it was like to go home to a girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to We Talk About Dead People, a podcast where we hate on the British and also talk about dead people. I'm your host, Aaron C., and I'm here with my good friend and co-host, George. Say hi, George. Diaguich. I'm going to guess that's something in Irish. You would be correct. It is a common greeting. Basically, hello. But it actually literally means God be with you. But since you're a filthy English Protestant, I can assure you that he won't be. <laughs> I am this close to becoming Catholic because of this series. We hope to keep our listeners entertained and interested while we break down various members of the odd and exciting family that is humanity. The way this works is that George and I will do our amateurs best, give a basic account of the major events of the life of a now dead person, and to give a fairly accurate depiction of their individual character, which is harder to do, but we're going to try anyway. So, George, what's on the agenda this week? Well, today we are picking up where we left off last week in 1916 in the aftermath of the Easter Rising. And I can assure you the party has just gotten started. That's great news because I can't wait, cannot wait to see more bills being paid. Uh, <laughs> uh, I was going to try to figure out a way to segue into mentioning that both George and I are sick this week. So if we sound like we're dying, or if you hear this noise, that's me muting my mic so you don't have to listen to my disgusting sneezes and coughs. Oh, oh, I've got, I've got the segue. Oh. The British Empire are sick, just like your hosts this week. <laughs> exactly. And with that, I think it's time to go down to the History Lab and get this party started. Yeehaw. Fourteen executions, several wars, too many different factions to count, and the cost of freedom. Here we go, boys. Another week of pro-Irish, anti-British Empire content designed to revitalize the IRA. So, Aaron, when is the big move happening? It's in six days, and I couldn't be more excited. I literally have a calendar on my wall, and I'm Xing out days. Damn, son. Well, that's like in a movie. Shit. Well, great. I'm, I'm glad to hear it. I, I hope it works out well for you. So, hypothetically, if you had to drive across the whole goddamn country alone, like a frickin' loser, and were only allowed to listen to one thing the entire way, what would you choose? Irish music. Ah, topical. I like it. That's good. Yeah. No, I actually did that once. Uh, I, I drove halfway across the country, and all I listened to was, like... Uh, the Dubliners, the Wolf Tones, all those guys. It was awesome. And There's nothing quite like soaring through Arkansas um, with the scratchy voice of, um, what's his name, the lead singer? Um, which one, Liam Clancy or? Uh, Dubliners. Ro Ronnie Drew? Ronnie Drew. Without, there's nothing quite like hearing Ronnie Drew belt out some lyrics while you're just blasting your way through the... the Midwestern states. I'll tell you, you have to, you have to like smoke cigarettes 
for like yep. 40 years and literally eat whiskey for breakfast to get a voice <laughs> like that. I think you, you have to gargle coal. <laughs> and, and you know what? It's worth it because that man's voice is goddamn amazing. It is amazing. It is amazing. If you guys haven't listened to Ronnie Drew, just go go listen to Ronnie Drew. Ooh, rare old times. Oh God. Ooh. Yeah, that's a that's that, a tough that's, song. Yeah, Ooh, it's peak. Ooh. Anyway, um, yeah, good well, choice. If I had to ask you the same question, which is if you had to drive across the goddamn country alone like a freaking loser, what would you listen to all the way? Well, I think I would probably listen to the complete audio recording of the works of H.P. Lovecraft. Nice. I drive a lot already, always alone, and almost always at night, and somehow it's it's comforting to hear a creepily deadpan narrator delving into eldritch, hor- eldritch horrors and descents into madness as I drive through the empty expanses of America's backcountry. Like, you know, the tree branches start to look like octopus creatures. It just it makes yeah. the whole thing kind of trippy and exciting. Nice. No, I, I haven't had my Lovecraft phase, but I did read one story that you recommended to me a while back, and... I don't remember what it was, but I remember it being pretty spooky and involving, like, underground tunnels or Rat, some shit. Rats in the walls. Was oh, it? yeah. Yep, that's one of the yeah. best. That's Ooh. a good one. Oh. Yeah. Too spooky. <laughs> <laughs> okay, computer, please bring up somebody from Ireland. Just bring up Ireland in the 20th century. We're talking about a country today. I don't know. <laughs> Uh, so far, this series has gotten so much positive feedback, we just decided to keep riding the Irish train. And it's been a depressing little journey in some ways, but it's also been inspiring uh, to see people rise up for what they care about and their fellow man and their countrymen and the idea of freedom and autonomy, even in a world where big evil British empires exist. So why don't we start off, because our list, a lot of people you know, won't have listened to the past two episodes, why don't we start off with a little recap uh, of where we left off last time. That is a strangely good idea from you, Aaron. I know. <laughs> so, when we left off, um, the Easter Rising had just happened, and it had, in military terms, been a dismal failure. Um, 90 rebels were condemned to death by a British military court, but they only got through 14 of those executions before they realized just how badly they were fucking up. On the last day of the executions, they had killed the Irish socialist leader, James Connolly, who had broken with many of his socialist colleagues to participate in a nationalist uprising. His death, especially among the other deaths, tied to a chair because he was already dying and was too injured to stand was really galvanizing and even people with no sympathy for the rebels began to to uh, call for a halt to the executions and it reached the point that general maxwell the british commander in ireland was pretty much forced to call them off because it was like it was looking bad like other countries were starting to notice and like send polite <laughs> messages to british diplomats being like um what exactly are you guys doing Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, because you can't hide it forever. Uh, and, you know, when you're looking at an Irish diaspora in the United States, you know, that's how you garner some sympathy, I would say, worldwide, is just the stories. No, exactly. Individuals. Exactly. And, like, even the 
even the political leader of Northern Ireland at the time, Carson, he said they should probably stop because he's, you know, he obviously wants Northern Ireland to be separate from the rest of Ireland because he wants to stay with England. But he realizes that this is this is a bad idea. These sort of gratuitous dramatic executions are just going to strengthen the cause of Irish independence. And since he's against that, he's like, you guys need to fucking stop. We've got an yeah. okay thing. Don't fuck it up. <laughs> okay. Yeah. But one leader wasn't executed, and that was Eamon de Valera. Now, you may think that Eamon de Valera doesn't exactly sound Irish in the second half. And you, yeah. would, be, you would be right. His mother was Irish, but his father was Spanish, and he was born in America. Which is probably what saved him, because the tentacled monstrosity of the British Empire was, at that time, trying to bring the U.S. into the Armageddon of World War I, and so executing an American-born rebel might have diplomatic repercussions. In addition to that, he wasn't, uh, Eamon wasn't already a notorious leader, like Connolly, and so Maxwell decided not to have him killed. In fact, there's, there's an anecdote that apparently when, um, when Maxwell's being informed of who the leaders were and they get to Eamon de Valera, he's like, who the hell is that? Because <laughs> he, he wasn't already notorious and he was, you know, by some measure, American. So Maxwell decides that he's going he's gonna to give him a pass. Gotcha. But the damage was already done to Britain's image. Ireland had more than a dozen new martyrs and to mm. the Irish many of whom hadn't even supported this rebellion when it first happened, martyrs is exactly what the fallen leaders of 1916 seemed like. I mean, Connolly, badly wounded, had to be tied to a chair to be shot. Uh, Plunkett was already terminally ill. McDermott was a cripple who could barely walk. And William Pierce was only shot because he was the brother of Patrick Pierce, who was the one who read out the Proclamation of Independence. Oh my God. Yeah. They so shot him? Yeah, he was, I mean, he participated in the rebellion, but he was not, like, a leader outside of the fact that his brother was the one who read the, the proclamation. Oh, my God. Okay. Yeah, and so, like, these, as you can see, that's a, that's a pretty good lineup for martyrdom status in the eyes of, you know, the Irish public. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so Britain, The British are doing it to themselves at this point. Yeah. So, <sighs> what the actions of the 1916 rebels had not been able to accomplish... It, their deaths were, and it was um, the great the greatest impact on Irish history that they had was after they were after they were killed and by the manner of their death rather than by their actual rebellion. I see. See, that's that's uh, that's interesting because that's actually a frequent uh, motif in a lot of uprisings. Uh, the one spark that starts it all isn't actually the first one. Well, I mean, technically it is, but. It's not actually it's, the one that takes. Yeah, it doesn't take, but then the treatment of the uh, uprising, uh, the people who led it, usually is the, is sort of the red pill that gets everybody else going. Like, holy shit, they're not on our side. No, know? exactly, and that's exactly yeah. what's happening here. And will continue to happen. That's actually going to kind of be a theme throughout this episode. Okay. So, the British government understood very well that something was going to have to give in Ireland. Um... So they convened what was called the Irish Convention in 1917, which was um, 
representatives from the British government as well as from different Irish political parties and groups all met to work out a concrete plan over how home rule, that is the independence of Ireland but within the British Empire, which had been granted in 1914 but then immediately suspended because of World War I, was actually going to work. So they were meeting to try to figure out the nuts and bolts of how that was going to happen, how independence was going to be effectively utilized. In particular, they needed to find an answer to the whole Ulster issue, since obviously Irish nationalists wanted a united Ireland, and the Protestants in Ulster in the north, the Scots-Irish and British, refused to accept the idea of living under the government of a Catholic majority, and so they didn't so they wanted to break away from Ireland if Ireland got home rule. And so you've you've different groups who want different things and nobody is really getting anywhere. And the whole gotcha. conference kind of kind of fell apart and they didn't accomplish anything. Um, Redmond, who was the parliamentary leader of the Irish nationalists in the British Parliament, actually died halfway through the conference. And some of his last words were addressed to the convention, which were better for us to have never met than to have met and failed. Damn. Wow. Because he he recognized that if that if the convention wasn't going to actually accomplish its goal, which it was pretty clear that it wasn't, it was actually worse for everyone that if it had that it had never happened in the first place, because it sort of puts a big banner out that says there's no political solution. Yeah, there's nothing that can be done. Uh, That's a bad look. Yeah, he's right. He's right. And so right around the time that the convention is ending without success, the British decided to fuck everything up yet again. The um, the German Spring Offensive of 1918, because remember, we're in World War One. It's also called the Ludendorff Offensive, had absolutely handed the British army its ass on a stick. Right. In the course of about a month, British casualties exceeded 300,000. It was one of the it was one of the more effective specific offensives of any of any side in the entire war. Like the British absolutely, you know, got wrecked. Yeah, I, I remember hearing about this on Dan Carlin's podcast about World War One. I. I knew nothing about the uh, the what was it like the uh, the door or whatever the Schlieffen plan. Oh, the Schlieffen plan. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know shit about that until I listened to Dan Carlin. So now, but here's the. Here's can I can I take a little digression just a little one Sure. So, here's the thing about the British at this point and really for the entire sort of end period of their empire, they're really good at naval warfare and effectively utilizing naval warfare in such a way that they can avoid conventional land warfare because they're fine at like shooting illiterate people with spears and yeah. whatnot, but they're actually really bad at conventional warfare at this point. Like, around the same time, um, 1916, 17, and 18, I think it was, or maybe 14, 16, 17. Anyway, it's three different years in World War II. The British launched invasions of Bulgaria and each time suffered catastrophic defeats in land battle. Like, we're talking, like, 8 to 1, 10 to 1 casualty ratios between them and the Bulgarians. Like, this is the British Empire, allegedly, you know, the most, at this point, the most powerful country on the earth, has three catastrophic defeats at the hands of Bulgaria. (laughs) Like, their land forces are actually pretty fucking incompetent when they're fighting actual military as opposed to, you know, some sort of native insurgency 
This reminds me of like this sounds like like the Ben Shapiro of empires. Like, <laughs> He's good at schooling dumb college students, but you sit him down in front of one guy who asks the right question, and he gets up and leaves. <laughs> yeah, that that basically is it. So yeah, yeah. so yeah, the British the <laughs> British were just you know absolutely getting fucked by the Germans in the spring offensive. So what did Britain, in her infinite wisdom, decide would be the best course of action? They decided to begin forced conscriptions in Ireland. What could go wrong? Man, you know, it's like we hate the Irish until we need them. And then, then we steal their boys and send them off to die in a goddamn meat grinder. And we still hate them on top of that. And we still <laughs> hate them on top of it. So, yeah, this, this is not going to be popular in All Ireland. Right. And in that year, uh, 1918, the parliamentary elections in Ireland sent a pretty fucking clear message. The Sinn Féin party, that is the, um, remember that nationalist group that didn't believe that independence could be gained by political means of operating through the British parliamentary system right. that had been founded and had sort of overlapped with, um, with people in 1916. Some of them were also members, but hadn't really been a big deal. They went and, uh, yeah, they, they kind of went ham in this election. Hmm. So they'd originally been founded specifically just for Irish independence as either a kingdom or a republic. They didn't really have a, a specific political thing they wanted. They just wanted an actual independent Ireland, not independent status within the British Empire. And so they had always refused to participate in the... Um, government things that the British set up. So they had refused to participate in the Irish convention on principle because they didn't recognize the legitimacy of an Irish government, which was put in place by the British. Okay. Makes sense. And as I said, yeah. yeah, some of the 1916 rebels, including De Valera were Sinn Féin members, but on the whole, it had been a pretty small movement until these elections In the uh -oh. elections of 1918 in the face of forced British conscription, under the leadership of our boy, Eamon de Valera, Sinn Féin won over three quarters of the vote in Ireland. And that quarter it didn't win was predictably in the northeast in Ulster, the Protestant loyalist area. Gotcha. So, not and there, there are two main things to this. One is the forced conscription and nationalism. That's absolutely huge. There is another factor though, there. It's hard to say how much how important it is, but there is another factor, which is that this was the first election held after the British passed the Representation of the People Act, which extended voting rights to all adult men and to adult women over 30. Previously, most lower-class people had not been able to vote, so you have the franchise suddenly opened up to the lower classes i.e. the ones who've been suffering from the brunt of British oppression for all these years, and the British fucking up even more, put that together and you have a landslide for Sinn Féin. So yeah, here no are a few numbers to show how drastic this political change was. Before the 19th election, Sinn Féin had six members of parliament. Afterwards, it had 73. Holy shit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. And the only time I've seen numbers like that was uh, in Germany <clears throat> when uh, the Nazi party took over the Reichstag. Um, I don't know if you ever read about that, but uh, I was looking at, we were going, it was on the Goebbels episode. Um, it went from like no Nazi representation in, uh, in political power to almost entirely <laughs> uh, 
it was a, it was a, it was blowback basically. Yeah. Yep. No. This is this is same thing happens here. Hmm. So you that um, the Irish Unionist Party, which that was the Ulster faction that wanted you know Northern Ireland to be part of Britain still. Um, they had 17 before the elections, and they went up to 22, so you sort of see some consolidation. And the Irish Parliamentary Party, which was the political nationalist party, the ones who had been behind the whole home rule thing, and so the ones who had been sort of leading the political movement for Irish independence, they went from 67 to 6. Holy shit. So, yeah, the, the sort of the political solution party got absolutely crushed... And the No Political Solution Party went up a lot, and then the party that opposed it went up a bit. So you kind of you kind of lost the uh, lost any any sense of a middle there. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Um, so this is so this. <coughs> no, go on. I'm sorry. So they were. Um, oh no, I, I lost my train of thought because I was coughing. All right, carry on. <laughs> so anyway, so this is a little bit problematic for the British, isn't it? Um, since they've now had a landslide Irish election for the people whose platform is that they don't participate in British politics. That sounds like a problem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so after this, the election, um, the members of Sinn Féin, who were elected to Parliament, had ru- who they'd, they'd run on a promise not to participate in British governance of Ireland... Predictably, refused to enter the British Parliament at Westminster, which is what you normally do if you're elected to the British Parliament. They just wouldn't right. go. <clears throat> and what did they do instead? They oh, went no. to Dublin and formed the first uh, Doileran, which is the Assembly of Ireland. So sort of a an Irish Parliament. Uh, I thought I heard my name in there. Hey. <laughs> 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 And what was the first thing that the Assembly of Ireland, the Doyle Aaron, did? They ratified that Declaration of Independence, the Proclamation of the Irish Republic, which Patrick Pierce had had read out in 1916. And they they ratified it, and they declared the independence of the Irish Republic on the 21st of January, 1919. Chad move right there. Definitely. <laughs> that takes balls. Definitely, yeah. Like, get elected to the British Parliament, and then be like, fuck you, we're forming our own parliament. Yeah, inspired by 1776, baby. 1770s. 1916 will commence again. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, um, so this this Irish Republic, they declared, wasn't just an independent Irish Republic for the south of Ireland. It declared a Irish Republic covering all 32 counties of Ireland. That Mm. includes the north. Uh Uh-oh. Ooh, yeah. So that's this gonna this is gonna be a problem, and okay. the Irish, the new Irish government made it clear to the British that they weren't interested in any more bullshit. That they wanted a actually free and independent Ireland without any more goddamn British involvement. Uh oh. Yeah. So as you can imagine, there were two groups that weren't exactly thrilled with this development. I that wonder w- who. <laughs> those were the British. And the Loyalists in Ulster. And so, in areas which were Loyalist and Protestant, like Ulster, the whole independence thing was just ignored. And in areas where the British had significantly military presence, it was also just ignored. Um, They just pretended like none of this ever happened. Because they they wanted to be careful, because after how 1916 went, they didn't want to just, like, 
burn a city down or something, which is probably what they would have done before, because that would not be a great look. Yeah, they're, um, doing, they're doing damage control right now. Yeah, so they're, they're approaching this cautiously, um, and are just kind of ignoring this new republic. Hmm. But a lot of people in this republic had had enough of the Brits and their goddamn bullshit. Yep. And so, on the day that the Republic was declared, members of the Irish Volunteer Force, remember that's the uh, the Irish, um, you know, military force which had been formed back before 1916 and then had some of whom had fought for the British in World War One. others had participated in the, in the Rising. Right. So, members of this group, the IVF, led by Dan Breen and Sean Tracy, carried out an ambush of an explosive shipment being transported by the Royal Irish Constabulary, which was the British, basically military, police in Ireland, and they killed two RIC officers and seized all the goodies, that is, the explosives, from the shipment. And about this whole thing, Dan Breen, one of the two leaders, uh, recalled, and I want to read this quote here, We took the action deliberately, having thought over the matter and talked it over between us. Tracy had stated to me that the only way of starting a war was to kill someone, and we wanted to start a war, so we intended to kill some of the police, whom we looked upon as the foremost and most important branch of the enemy forces. The only regret that we had following the ambush was that there were only two policemen in it, instead of the six that we had expected. Oh, man. <laughs> uh, we wanted to shoot six, but there were only two. Uh, what can you do? <laughs> yeah, so as I said, done. A lot of people yeah. were really fucking done. And if you've listened to the last two episodes, you can understand why. Yes. <laughs> like, I think for a noob, if you haven't heard, like, all the stuff leading up to this, you're like, wait, why, why are they killing the British? Like, uh, the British are the good guys. They're, they're the UK. They're our allies. They never did anything wrong. Nope. Go back, listen to the previous two episodes. Yep. So, mm. being that the Irish Volunteer Force, which was at this time led by Dave Valera... Um, predated this new Republic of Ireland, because remember, it had been founded um, back even before the Easter Rising, back in, uh, like, 1914, I think it was, or maybe even before. Um, and it had its own institutions and its own leadership and everything. The um, the Doileran, that is the Assembly of Ireland, which was also at this point led by David Lara, so he's the president of the Assembly and he's also the head of the IVF, officially adopts the IVF as the armed forces of the Republic of Ireland, and this is the beginning of, and I've been waiting weeks to say this, the IRA, the Irish Republican Army. Hell yeah. <laughs> I wish we I wish we had like the John Cena music there. Okay. <laughs> I, I'll put that in. I will put that in just for you. <laughs> <laughs> so in the beginning of this um this new independent Irish Republic, the British still held most of the cities, since that's where their garrisons were. And the actual military force of the IRA was pretty small. Um, and the Irish Republic, this new government, hadn't actually declared war on Britain. It had just okay. kind of declared that it existed, it was independent, but hadn't actually declared how it was going to enforce that. So things actually started off pretty chill. Like, as I said, there was Sean Tracy and Dan Breen killed some RIC and took the explosives. But for the most part, this this first year was, as wars go, very low-key. It was mostly just sort of raids on transports to steal supplies, ambushing convoys, um, raids on prisons to free Irish prisoners, that kind of stuff, and occasional attacks against 
members of the British government in Ireland who were seen as especially guilty of crimes against the Irish people. But for the right. most part, it wasn't really a war as we would recognize it. It was just kind of a period of civil unrest with violence, but it wasn't. It, re- it didn't really take on the quality of a war in 1919. It wasn't until 1920 that things really got pretty wild. But um, we're not there yet. So about this whole situation... A British journalist actually wrote in 1920, and I wanted to read this because it just kind of recapitulates everything I was just saying. And here's the quote. So far as the mass of people are concerned, the policy of the day is not active, but a passive policy. Their policy is not so much to attack the government as to ignore it and to build up a new government by its side. I see. So it's like they're just they're trying to build their Irish Republic and they're kind of just ignoring the presence of the English government in Ireland and the English government's mostly ignoring them. Hmm. So it starts out that's as you, actually a very low-key war. Yeah. yeah. So it's not even really a war yet. It's just like, it's kind of like domestic terrorism or not really that, but you know what I mean. Yeah, it's it's hard to it's hard to quantify what it is since you have two governments that are both ignoring yeah. each other. <laughs> um, <laughs> since normally when you have two governments in the same place, that means you have a civil war going on, but yeah. they're not really at war. They're just kind of pretending the other one doesn't exist. So yeah, I don't know what you call this. But anyway, like, so no, this is like this is when you go home and your girlfriend's there and like she was she won't look at you and she won't talk to you and like you can't figure out what you did wrong because you're a dumbass. <laughs> That's the British Empire. You're the British Empire in that scenario. <laughs> well excuse me, Aaron, I wish I knew what it was like to go home to a girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> Go home to your memes. <laughs> but they're always there for me. That's true. Anyway, so this lasts through 1919 and into 1920. Now, the uh, the head of the, the Doyle, the Irish Assembly, Dave Valera, wanted to be able to field a professional army in order to have, like, real conventional warfare against the British, which is kind of what they had tried to do back in 1916. But the other leaders, including Michael Collins, who was the IRA's director of intelligence, as well as being finance minister for the Irish Republic, believed that decentralized guerrilla tactics were actually their best chance against the British. Hmm. And in any case... I could see that. Yeah. I mean, he has has a point. In any case, most Irish people weren't super enthusiastic about, like, a real war being fought in their yards again since they've kind of had a lot of violence over 800 years. And so they weren't they weren't actually that big fans of the uh, the IRA's campaign of violence and, you know, ambushing and stuff. Like, there wasn't a huge amount of popular support for this. Yeah. But guess but, what happens? Uh-oh. The British find a way to change that. Uh-oh. <laughs> they began creating officially sanctioned paramilitary groups that would operate alongside the Royal Irish Constabulary, their police force, but with little oversight or accountability. Oh, no. And also very little training. And they also tended to stock them with, like, shell-shocked and post-traumatic veterans of World War One who were unemployed on the streets of English cities. Oh, that's good. Yeah. So, the most notorious of these was the, um, the RIC, Royal Irish Constabulary, Special Reserve, which were known as the Black and Tans for their improvised uniforms, which had bits of the tan British military uniforms and bits of the RIC black uniforms all mixed up. So, Black oh, and man. Tans. <clears throat> they were thought up, personally, by Winston Churchill oh. um, as a compliment to the 
Another of these groups, the Royal Irish Constabulary Auxiliary Division, known as the Oxys, which was a paramilitary comprised of former army officers whose job it was to spearhead attacks on IRA positions. The Black and Tans were supposed to be on the defensive side. That is, they were supposed to sort of keep order in areas already under British control, while the Oxys were in charge of actually doing attacks. So they were supposed to sort of work in unison. I just want to say real quick, um, recently I've thought about redoing the Winston Churchill episode, because as I read more about that guy, I just hate him more and more and more because he was res- he was personally responsible for the deaths of millions of people around the world tens of millions um and he was insane <clears throat> and <clears throat> you know he was he was all, he was all, also had some like funky financial dealings which were not okay uh and he had these weird things that he would do that were like you know at home that were not okay i felt like i missed a lot on the winston churchill episode and that may be one where we we do like a resurrection episode where we bring back somebody else, somebody we've already done just because we hate them so much. I mean, that's fair. I do have a deep and abiding hatred of that fat fuck. Yeah. Yeah. Fuck him. Seriously. Seriously. Um, but yeah, anyway, um, so this was his little his little brain baby, the black and tans. So you have these two groups, the Oxys, who are generally better trained, better equipped, and probably slightly less insane, but certainly just as evil, um, who are sort of the the cutting edge of the sword. And so they're launching attacks on IRA positions, you know, taking territory and stuff. And then you have the black and tans who are behind them and are supposed to sort of defend areas and keep things running smoothly in areas already under British control. Hmm. Well, between these two groups, the Oxys and the Black and Tans, they racked up quite a massive charge of hatred in Ireland for their just wanton brutality. Hmm. They tended to view any Irish as suitable targets of reprisal whenever anyone was killed in an IRA attack. So if the IRA happened to ambush a convoy near your village, the Black and Tans might just come burn down your whole village and maybe kill you just because you were nearby. Oh my god. Not cool. Yeah, Not cool no. at all. Yeah, they also um, kidnapped and murdered people suspected of being IRA members. Uh, sometimes they just shot civilians because they were standing there minding their own business suspiciously. Ugh. And they also had a habit of murdering Catholic priests who were outspoken about Irish politics to send a message. Of course they did. Yeah, so these are not nice people. Uh, Not nice people at all. And it's... The Black and Tans are the ones that, for whatever reason, are commemorated more. Maybe because of the distinctive name. But the Oxys were just as bad in terms of the atrocities committed. So the Black and Tans, more people have heard of, and not many people have heard of the Oxys, but they are they are pretty equal partners in the atrocities. Okay, that's good to know. I actually didn't know about them. Yep, yep. As I said, the Oxys were definitely more professional, and so they were, probably, they were much more effective at fighting, but they were just as evil as the Black and Tans. The Black I and see. Tans were also kind of crazy, as I said, because they were filled with, like, homeless veterans with shell shock who the British just kind of rounded up on the streets of London trained for three months and then sent to Ireland wow yeah yeah <clears throat> so yeah not not great um one of the most devastating incidents was on the 11th of December 1920 when in reprisal for an IRA ambush which killed one oxy the oxy's 
and the Black and Tans rampaged through the city center of Cork, one of the largest cities in Ireland, looting, robbing, beating random people, shooting at civilians, and finally burning down the whole city center. Why? This is and this is one of the largest cities in Ireland. So just imagine that. Just a you know a rogue military police unit just deciding to burn down one of the largest cities in the country. Man, that's just that's just crazy. Yeah. Oh. Um, the British in the press, of course, claimed that the IRA had done all this. Of course they. Why did. the fuck would the IRA do this? I don't fucking know. And eventually there was released the official British Army Inquiry Report, which correctly identifies that it was the British Auxiliary Forces who did it. So I don't even know how they thought anyone was going to buy that the IRA had decided to randomly burn down an Irish city. I yeah, but the, the sheeple would buy something like that. Yeah. <laughs> so very much like in the case of the Easter Rising, which we talked about, the British stringently avoided holding anyone accountable for the atrocities they committed. And when sufficient publicity would force them to address something, so when like, enough people found out about some atrocity that there was like public demand that something be done, they would court-martial people, and then they would find them guilty but insane, which meant they wouldn't be punished. They would just put them in an asylum and then like release them after a year or two. Okay, that's pretty fucking stupid. Yeah, so that's sort of what they tended to do when they did have to court-martial members of the Black and Tans or the Oxys. They would find them guilty but insane and then make them spend a year or so in an asylum and then let them go. <sighs> I hate corruption. My God. Britain needed a Batman at this time. <laughs> Tell me about it. Or a Bane. Bane they deserved yeah. a Bane. They did, they did deserve a Bane, didn't they? Yeah. So it is estimated that in the first 18 months of this conflict, British forces carried out 38,720 raids on private homes, Ugh. arrested 4,982 suspects, committed 1,604 armed assaults, and carried out 102 indiscriminate shootings and burnings of towns and villages. Okay, so let me ask you, everybody out there, especially our American friends, when there's a mass shooting in the news, does he also burn down the fucking village? Is he supported by a goddamned empire, the largest in the world? And did it happen 102 <laughs> times in over 18 months? No? Okay. <laughs> Sorry, I just had to get that one out. Yeah, no, no, I, I understand it. Uh, just, give it just to give a little perspective, because like today we feel like, oh god, it's chaotic and awful out there. It's like... They haven't raided 38,000 homes, and they don't burn down villages yet. You know, it's... So, yeah, just just for a little perspective. Oh, don't worry. I'm sure our, our esteemed friends in the three-letter agencies will get around to it. <laughs> we are such a fucking watch list. <laughs> I wear that as a badge of fucking honor. <laughs> anyway, before I say something I'm going to regret, let's move on with the episode. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, in 1920, in March of 1920, Thomas McCurtain, who was the mayor of Cork, so one of the biggest cities in Ireland, was shot dead in front of his wife at his home by men who were wearing black, black paint over their faces, who were then seen returning to the local police barracks. So it's like, for fuck's sake, if you're gonna paint your face to hide who you are, and then just openly walk back <laughs> into the police barracks... 
That's hilarious. And like, stupid and sad. Sorry, like, come man, on. man died. Like, come on. Yeah, the man was shot to death in front of his wife. And then the these mysterious strangers just fucking walk back into the police barracks. My God, Justin Trudeau's been doing bad shit like this for centuries. <laughs> he must be stopped. <laughs> so, um... There was, because this is, you know, this is a, a public figure. This is the mayor of one of the largest cities. So there was, you know, a inquest into his death. And the jury um, did, returned a verdict of willful murder against David Lord George, who was the prime minister of England. So, yeah, I love that. The fucking balls on this jury in Cork who found the fucking prime minister of the British Empire guilty of murder. That's fucking wow. fantastic. Like, I don't know who they were. I couldn't couldn't find their names. I probably maybe if I'd looked in some really obscure records, but whatever that the people on that jury, I fucking salute you. Like, yep. <laughs> like that's fucking real. Yeah, no shit. And they also found they also delivered a verdict of murder against the district police inspector Swansea, um, and some other officials. Swansea was later tracked down and killed by the IRA. Gotcha. Wow. So okay. Not really shedding tears over that one. Nope. <laughs> but this this pattern of killings and then reprisals between the IRA and the British paramilitaries really escalated in the second half of 1920 and into 1921. Like this got this got really real. The uh, the British would kill someone, so the IRA would kill someone, so the British would kill someone, so the IRA would kill. It would just it got really really real. Um, gotcha. And constant. Mm. But the thing about these paramilitaries, as hated as they were, these bastards were almost all British. Right. And as bad as they were... Oh, God, there's my espresso machine going off. I like, how that's I like how that's like a, a recurrent guest star on the episode. I really... <laughs> I, I really did... Uh, I really do like that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's nice. It's stability. It's but anyway, so as bad as these... Um, these people were in the paramilitaries, the Oxys and the Black and Tans, they were a temporary problem. They were British who'd been sent over there to deal with Irish insurgency. The real problem in the eyes of the IRA leadership was the IRC, the Royal Irish Constabulary, which was comprised mostly of people born in Ireland, both Irish Catholics and Protestants with of Anglo-Irish background. Mm -hmm. So it, it was people who were, you know, born there, lived there, as opposed to people who were brought in from outside. And they were the real problem for the IRA because they were the permanent and long-standing means of control through which Britain ruled Ireland. Okay, got it. Makes yeah, sense. the the barrackses of the RIC were also a great source of weapons and supplies to seize. So the IRA did a lot of, of raiding and stealing of weapons and stuff. But, mm. and this, this is very smart, the IRA knew that the brutality of the Oxys and the Black and Tans was giving them an unquestioned moral high ground, and they were careful not to squander that. So instead of trying to just kill IRC members, like Tracy and Breen had done at the beginning, they decided instead to focus on stealing weapons from the IRC and waging a campaign of social ostracism against the members of the IRC. So Smart. Spurred on by decrees from the Irish Assembly, the Doyle, the Irish public really turned its back on the Irishmen of the I, of the IR. Sorry, of the RIC. I think I kept saying IRC because I'm thinking of the old internet days. Um, <laughs> Wait, and what? really, IRC? sort of. You remember internet relay chat? No. 
that was oh that was how people um like chatted uh, did live internet chatting was through it was called a, an app, a, a server called I, an IRC server internet relay chat huh wow oh yeah. wait i remember reading about that okay yeah. yeah that was the stone age anyway so the irish public really turned its back on the irishmen in the RIC and shamed them for their participation in as it. they should as they should yes and as the war went on and the atrocities of the black and tans and the oxies increased and knowledge of them spread throughout Ireland, the RIC became more and more demoralized and um, were affected very, very strongly by this rejection from Irish society. Irish shops would actually refuse to do business with them. Um, so there, there are instances of members of the RIC literally having to like buy bread at gunpoint because no one in a whole city would sell them a loaf of bread. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, people would just turn their backs to them in the street. They wouldn't talk to them. Um, the rate of resignations among officers just skyrocketed, and recruitment plummeted to almost zero. Wow. And Good. at the same time, um, you know, some members of the RIC actually started collaborating with the IRA to help them, uh, providing information and stuff, to help them take out oxys and black and tans. Oh, hell yeah. So yeah, this yes. was an extremely effective campaign. I was going to say, this worked better than just shooting them. Yeah, yeah. It, re it really did. It really yeah. did. Nice. And so this campaign uh, to demoralize the RIC coincided with a massive movement of civil disobedience to the British on the part of workers all over Ireland. Um, workers' strikes shut down cities. Dock workers refused to transport British military equipment. Um, the Workers' Union for the Irish Railway actually started refusing to carry any members of any British forces. Hell yeah. Um, the British eventually managed to end that by threatening to strip funds away from the railway so the workers couldn't be paid so they eventually got the got were able to move by rail again but it was too little and too late and the british position in ireland was extremely compromised because you know they they'd lost their ability to move freely around and do business and it was it was very if this 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 sort of peaceful campaign was actually extremely extremely effective this is awesome. And as the uh, at the same time, the IRA began stepping up its attacks on the Oxys and the Black and Tans, as well as its raids on police we police um, armories and weapons stores. And pretty much, the British control of Ireland just started to slip away. Um, isolated pockets of British forces began to withdraw to larger towns out of fear of IRA raids leaving uh, just huge swaths of the countryside in Irish hands, completely uncontrolled by the British. That's amazing. In 1920, um, 400 abandoned RIC barracks around Ireland were burned, the ones that had been just been abandoned by the RIC because they, they couldn't hold the area anymore. And 100 British tax offices were burned. People, <laughs> yes. Yeah, people en masse stopped participating in the British court system and British taxation. Like the British tried to keep holding their, you know, their their legal system and having court, but literally no jurors would ever show up. Wow. The more the, you tighten your grip talking, the more star <laughs> systems slip through your fingers. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, the British administration in Ireland by you know, the end of nineteen twenty had effectively collapsed. And the Irish government in um, with of the the Doyle, the Irish Assembly, began uh, replacing it with courts and police for the Irish Republic. That's awesome. I love this guy Doyle. 
<laughs> God damn it, Aaron. <laughs> so, um, but of course, this makes the British quite upset because they don't like they don't like it when they're not in charge. They don't like it when people are living their best lives. No, they, they like it when they're enslaved. Exactly. So, from late 1920 into 1921, as British control is eroding quickly and the legitimacy of the Irish Republic is growing more established, as it starts, you know, doing the functions of a government with courts and police and stuff, the violence also escalated. Okay. Um, with in this period, a thousand people, including RIC, our British Army, IRA, the various paramilitaries, and civilians. Um, were killed in the months between January and July of 1921, which is about 70% of the total people killed for the whole war. Okay. So this is when it, this is when most of the real violence actually happens. Mm. It, it was also at this time that De Valera, as the president of the Doyle, finally acknowledges an official state of war with Britain. Because remember, they just kind of not addressed that in the beginning of what the deal was with Britain. They just declared the government of the Irish Republic and kind of ignored Britain. And so you've had a, you know, a tacit state of war, but it was at this time that you finally actually acknowledged an official state of war. Okay. This is good. Yeah. Yeah. And the IRA continued its method of unconventional warfare, favoring ambushes, raids, and surprise attacks. And often they were quite successful and had quite a few very successful attacks on British forces, but they offered, often suffered defeats as well, um, which frequently was caused by the British having gained advanced intelligence about the attack. Because mm. if you have information about an ambush, you can ambush the people who are going to ambush you mm. and pretty effectively take them out. And these failures were often followed by IRA-led killings of informers who had collaborated with the British. There's a lot of debate about how many of these were legitimate. Like, were they just killing people who had actually worked with the British? Or were they, you know, killing people who were just suspected of having worked with the British? Like, how many of these killings were legitimate? Where we can really never know. Um, so that, yeah, that's, that's something that's still debated. Yeah, um, can never be too careful, I guess. Yeah. And I can, it's pretty understandable why you'd be, um pretty stringent in your attitude towards people who would have uh, collaborated with the British at this point. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm not, not saying things were right, but I'm saying I understand. Yeah, yeah. In, uh, in May of 1921, several hundred IRA men from the IRA Dublin Brigade actually occupied and burned the Customs House, which was the center of local government around Dublin and Ireland. It sort of it was a, it was a symbol of, of government in Ireland. It's right in Dublin city center. So they occupy and burn it. And symbolically, this was supposed to show that, you know, British rule in Ireland was over. They couldn't do it anymore. But from a military standpoint, it was actually, you know, a defeat because five IRA men were killed and over 80 captured Damn. during this. So this showed that the IRA was not well enough equipped or trained to take on British forces in a conventional manner. Just, just like in 1916, it just wasn't possible for them to fight that way. And so the guerrilla war continued on. But before we get into the rest of the guerrilla war, I think it's time we take a little break and look at today's honorable mention. So please take it away, Aaron. All right. Welcome, guys, to honorable mentions, the part of the show where we take a little break to cover somebody who is kind of interesting or really interesting, but has a very short story. 
So, I, this week, have chosen Carrie Nation, who is very interesting. And I'm going to try to blow through it, because I feel like this episode's probably going to be over long anyway. Um, but, here we go. So, in 1846, a living, now dead, but still kind of living legend, was born. And, appropriately, she was of Irish descent, but she was born in Kentucky. And this was a dangerously badass woman uh, who was, I would say, unleashed upon the United States. <laughs> uh, who was this woman of whom I speak? Her name was indeed Carrie Nation, and she would indeed grow up to carry the nation. <laughs> he should be ashamed of that. Pun. I couldn't not. <laughs> So, as a girl, Carrie Nation experienced poor health and bad education and was moved all over the country, being displaced by the American Civil War. During the war, Carrie Nation was a part-time nurse who took care of soldiers uh, wounded in local raids. And in 1865, Carrie Nation met a man named Charles Gloyd, uh, which is like the worst name. <laughs> I hate saying it. How do you spell uh, it? G-L-O-Y-D. Yeah, that, that sounds like some really lame insult like a fifth grader would have come up with in like 1996 yeah yeah he's some kind of gloid oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, i'm so gloid to meet you <laughs> i didn't go to school i can't read i don't know he literally did not go to school everybody all right so uh where was i oh yeah so uh carry nation was uh with this dude charles i'm not gonna say the last name again uh he was a doctor with the Union Army, and he also he became infatuated with her as well, and so he said, let's get married. But there was one little problem. Monsieur Gloyd was an alcoholic. Now, Carrie's parents didn't want this wedding to happen because they were afraid this would have a negative impact on Carrie's life, which is understandable. He's an alcoholic. <laughs> But the wedding went on anyway, and they were married in the November of 1867. The alcohol thing, however, ended up being an even bigger problem than the Nation family had expected, and the couple only lasted a couple years before they separated, at which time Carrie gave birth to the couple's only daughter, Charlene, just before Gloyd would die of alcoholism. Now this may be sad and all, but Carrie Nation is not one to be trifled with, as we'll see here in a little bit. After selling all her land, which she gained by her marriage to uh, Mr. Gloyd, Nation built a dinky house and moved there with her mother-in-law uh, and her young daughter, Charlene. And she went to school and obtained a uh, degree in history, good move, and found another husband, a pastor, lawyer, journalist dude named David A. Nation. That's a... People used to be so versatile. I know. <laughs> they used to just do everything. Yeah. Um, now, everybody in this family, as you might imagine, is super well off. But work keeps uh, taking David away from home. And that's just oh. sad. He's got jobs everywhere but home. And Carrie is working all kinds of jobs to supplement his income. Uh, but it's usually hand-in-hand -hand with her daughter, which is not all that uncommon. So, like, they started, like, a sewing circle together. They had, like, a little business, you know, that they ran together so the, so the girl could learn. You know, it was, it, was, it was positive in the face of all things. So they eventually ended up in Kansas with David taking a full-time local job as a pastor in a small church. And around this time, Carrie Nation began her hero's journey. Because you see, Carrie never forgot what alcohol took from her. 
She lost the father of her only child to Satan's water, and the demand for vengeance has been building for a while now. Oh, God. Yep. So she begins working with what's called the Women's uh, Woman's Christian Temperance Union, uh, attempting to ban the sale of liquor in Kansas. This is offensive to my culture. I know. <laughs> How dare you put this in the middle of an Ireland episode, Aaron? <laughs> How fucking dare you? She's Irish. Doesn't matter. <laughs> She's also Protestant, so yeah, that's... fucking Protestant fuck. Probably an Ulsterman. Um, so anyway, she began her, her little, uh, her little, uh, mission of joy, um, with basic protests and shit, like, in the street with signs, like, lick, you know, that, that one sign, lips that touch liquor shall not never, touch ours. My, I remember, I remember yeah. that, that bullshit. Yeah. Um, for one thing, she would arrive, here's one thing that she did that was a little bit more creative. She would arrive at saloons unannounced, stand on tables, and sing hymns to the Most High God and Lord of the Mortal Realm. And when the saloon owners would ask her to leave, she would simply say, Hello, destroyer of men's souls. <laughs> she was <Okay>. successful. <laughs> She was successful in a way, but it wasn't quite enough. Something more needed to be done. In 1900, she prayed to the good Lord above for guidance, and her prayers were answered. The very next morning, she was awoken by a heavenly voice, which said, which she sp said spoke directly to her heart. Go to Kiowa. I will stand by you. Take something in your hands and throw at these places in Kiowa and smash them. So that was God. <laughs> Allegedly. So, Carrie Nation, now commanded by God to take physical action, gathered up the largest rocks she could find and went, or, and carry, and went to Kiowa. There she entered Dobson's saloon and cried out, Man, I have come to save you from a drunkard's fate! At which point she began smashing all the inventory, all the bottles and barrels with her armament of the Lord's rocks. <laughs> and she proceeded to do this at uh, two other saloons in Kiowa and was arrested for her actions. But she wasn't in jail very long and when she got out she went home to her husband who was incredibly supportive of this move. In fact, he made a joke about the t uh, next time she did this she should take a hatchet to inflict maximum damage on Satan's water fountains. But even though the couple uh, would be divorced in less than a year uh, after that, Carrie Nation took this uh, joke seriously. Sometimes accompanied by other women who hated Lucifer's Gatorade, uh, Carrie began riding, uh, raiding saloons in Oklahoma armed with a hatchet. She would bust up the whole place, singing hymns the whole time, you know, sometimes with other, other women, you know, breaking bottles and shit. And for 10 years, she fought the good fight and was arrested over 30 times for her hatchetations, as she called them. Okay, that, that's good. I, I like the new word. Yeah. <laughs> it's about time for a hatchetation. She also went to Kansas City, which was anti-temperance, and made a point of destroying bars inventory downtown. Uh, because it was, you know, the, the city which was uh, trying to pass laws... And she wanted to, you know, hit them where they could feel it, you know, right downtown. And in order to pay all her court fees, she began doing lecture tours and sold uh, souvenir hatchets, which were engraved with the simple phrase, death to rum. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Really doesn't like pirates. So bars began putting up signs that said, 
all nations are welcome here except Carrie. <laughs> Which is pretty funny. It's a pun. That, that's, that's good. No, I like that. That's yeah, funny. Because her name is Nation. <laughs> all right. Sorry. Um, so she became pretty infamous pretty quickly. And unfortunately, as you might have guessed, she also had a touch of the crazy and it manifested itself quite a lot more in her uh, later years. I would For say one, a, touch, a touch is being a tad um, generous. Uh, what makes you say that? Oh, nothing. Nothing at all. <laughs> so, yeah, she, this uh, manifested itself in a few ways. Uh, for one, she claimed to have invented the airplane, hmm. well, which, which we know isn't true because Elon Musk had already done it. I thought it was Al Gore. Oh, yeah. that's Wait, shit. It was Al Gore. Fuck, sorry. I got all my information from Wikipedia. You know, it's absolutely shameful to spread disinformation at a time like this. I know, I know. So and she... Be- do, you, do, you, do, you get, do you get the quote? Absolutely shameful to, at a time like this. No, spread I don't. Disin- oh, it's from Chernobyl. Oh, I haven't seen it yet. Uh, oh, you need, you need to watch Chernobyl. It was a great I, I will anyway. when I get back north. I, I, I'm so busy right now, I can't do shit. I can't even fucking deliver a podcast on time. Uh, so she also believed that when that uh, President William McKinley was a closeted alcoholic, and when he was assassinated in 1901, she publicly announced that he got what he fucking deserved. Ouch. Um, yeah, literally, that's pretty much what she said. Probably without the f word in there, but After anyway, all, she's a she's a good Christian. Yeah, can't do that. Smash the liquor that you don't own, um, but you know can't. Anyway, so at the end of her life, she ended up moving to Arkansas, where she founded a home known as Hatchet Hall, um, which is just this little, um, it, it was a place for, like, clubs and things to meet. And, you know, they were positive. She had a, or some of them were positive. She had, like, a, a, uh, um, I don't know what you call it. It was a support group for women, some something like that. Uh... So, in Arkansas, she would end up collapsing during a speech, uh, after which she was taken to an asylum, where she would live out her days to her death. In 1918, the Women's Christian Temperance Union built a drinking fountain in Carrie Nation's name, and there's a rumor that the driver of a beer truck lost control of his vehicle and crashed into it, but apparently this is just a rumor. And that's the story of Carrie Nation. That's and there's a reason I did not do a full episode on her. It, it, there's no story arc. It's just like she did this one thing, and it's like okay, okay, <laughs> wow. Well, that's that's pretty wild. That's yep. pretty wild. Protestants be tripping <laughs> over barrels of beer, <laughs> apparently on purpose. All right, shall we go back to Ireland? Oh, absolutely. Finally, can get a goddamn drink there. Yep. <laughs> Okay, let's do it. So, finally, in 1921, uh, the British government realized that the Irish guerrilla campaign couldn't really be defeated militarily, and that the really, that the sort of harsh social crackdown, which might effectively stamp it out, would only lead to more revolutions, and probably lead to other countries possibly supporting those revolutions, or at the very least, not being willing to play ball with Britain and other things. Right. Because, you know, they'd be disgusted by the atrocities Britain's committed in Ireland. So Britain kind of realizes it doesn't really have a way to win this. Yeah. Because they, they can't 
defeat a guerrilla campaign with conventional warfare, and they're not really in a position to be able to do the kind of harsh social, like, military, police, martial law bullshit, which might work because of how fragile everything else is. So, they negotiate a truce, followed by a treaty with Ireland. This treaty recognized an Irish free state, okay. which, um, that is the same status that Canada had. Oh. So it's very minimal British involvement. Um, okay. But, but they still... also, it's still part of the overall British thing. Yeah. And the treaty also gave Northern Ireland the right to opt out of inclusion, which, of course, they did since they never wanted to be part of, uh, of Ireland because, you know, Catholics are icky and gross. Um, <laughs> other clauses in the treaty declare that members of the new Free State Parliament would be required to take an oath of allegiance to the Irish Free State and that a secondary part of the oath would be to be faithful to His Majesty King George V, his heirs and successors by law in virtue of the common citizenship. So, at least the primary oath would be to the Irish Free State, but there'd still be this secondary oath to the King of England. Ugh. Yeah. They just can't um, let it go. Yeah. They just can't. Next, if Northern Ireland chose to withdraw, which they did, a boundary commission would be constituted uh, to draw the boundary between the Irish Free State and Northern Ireland, and that would have representatives from Ireland, Northern Ireland, and Britain. Gotcha. Um, Britain, for its own security, would continue to control a small number of ports in Ireland, which are known as treaty ports for use by the Royal Navy. Okay. Um, and the Irish Free State would assume responsibility for a proportionate part of the United Kingdom's national debt as it stood on the date of signature. So whatever the, Nash the UK's national debt was at that time... You take the Irish population as a proportion of the overall population of the UK, and that's the percentage that they would have that they would be responsible for. All right. So that uh -huh. seems like kind of a dick move, transferring some of your national debt to them. Um, yeah, no shit. And the, lastly, the treaty would have superior status in Irish law to anything else. I.e., if there was a conflict between the treaty and the Irish Constitution, which they would, which they would were expected to then make to govern the state, the treaty would always take precedence over anything else. Okay. So that's also a little bit problematic. Ugh. And the treaty was very narrowly passed by the Doyle, and I can kind of see both sides on this, because on the one hand, this is mostly free freedom yeah. for Ireland. Like, you know, after literally hundreds of... eight, Like, 800 years almost, 700 years of fucking dealing with the British, this is mostly a free Ireland that's on offer here. On the other side, this is essentially giving up an important part of the whole ideological underpinning, which is Ireland free from British rule, because you're still part of the uh, the overall British Empire, you know, you're taking on British debt, you're giving your the use of your ports to the Royal Navy. Mm. So I can see both sides here. Like, on the one hand, you're finally going to end the war, end the violence that's been going on for 800 years, and take a deal. But on the other side, you're kind of... It's like you're betraying the memory of, you know, hundreds of years of opposition if you, you know, take that oath to the King of England. Yeah. So well, yeah, this is a thing. I can see both sides. Well, it's like, you know, Canada. You know, they go, 
we're Canada. And I can just kind of say, not really, though. And they're like, yeah, we're Canada. Like, not really. Come on. <laughs> like, let's be Yeah, real. because, the, you know, the Canadians, so yeah, while their legal status may be, you know, similar to Canada under this, they don't have the history that Canada has with the with the English. Right, right. So, yeah. like, the, the purist in me who's been, I've been watching the Irish get fucked over for this entire series, I'm like, no, none of it. Not not at all. But I, I understand the temptation to just end it, you know? It's like, we'll just control some of your ports, you'll pay some of our debt, you know, you'll swear an oath to the king, but it's secondary to the Irish state. Um, you know, I get it. But yeah, it's, the fighter it's a tough in me, one. the fighter in me wants to is just like no, our terms. Yeah, you know? it's a it's a, it's a tough one. As I said, I can really see both sides here. Um, you know, yeah. <laughs> full disclosure. Ultimately, if I had to choose, getting ready to getting ready to be controversial here, I would probably be anti-treaty. I think at the mm. end of the day, I, I I couldn't I couldn't take that still swearing an oath of loyalty to the King of England after. Eight fucking hundred years of this. Yeah, no. it just it it's just it'd be a deal breaker. Yeah, and but, that would break your soul too. You know. Yeah. If you if you gave in to that one, like we'll give you almost everything you want, but you still will be ours in some little yeah, way. Yeah, it's kind of You'll like always know it. Even if you're getting most of what you want politically and physically, it's almost like you're giving up the whole ideological basis of the entire struggle. Yeah. which was a free Ireland. And if you give up the whole ideological basis on which the struggle, you know, was predicated, you're just dooming it to irrelevance and failure. Yeah. Uh, because ideas are more important than, you know, government jurisdictions. Yeah. And by signing, by agreeing with the treaty, you're kind of abandoning the ideal in exchange for getting the physical situation which you want. And yeah, so I ultimately I think I'd have to go anti-treaty. That may be controversial, but I don't give a fuck. I don't think I don't at this point I don't think our listeners are going to see any controversy in that at all <laughs> cuz you know, part part of me is like part of me is like looking at this and it's just like it's it's infuriating that it was even suggested and it's sad that it even passed. Yeah, and it um, passed very narrowly, yeah. as I said. Um, so, obviously, those who didn't support the treaty felt that everything they had fought for and that their people had fought for for 700 years was being betrayed. So, okay. Ireland ended up being split between those who supported the new provisional government of the Irish Free State, which had ratified the treaty, and those anti-faction treaties of the IRA. Um, Michael Collins, who was one of the main military leaders in the Irish War of Independence, supported the treaty, and he argued that the treaty gave, and here I'm going to quote here, not the ultimate freedom that all nations aspire and develop, but the freedom to achieve freedom. So he views it as sort of a stepping stone, a step in the right direction. Well, I mean, I don't, I mean, I, I understand that perspective, but I think... My response to that would be, you already have the freedom to achieve freedom. You just have to go out and take it, you know? Yeah. So, on the other side, um, Dave Valera opposed the treaty, and he said, quote, If the treaty were accepted, the fight for freedom would still go on, and the Irish people, instead of fighting foreign soldiers, will have to fight the Irish soldiers of an Irish government set up by Irishmen. 
And he goes on to say that the IRA would have to wade through the blood of the soldiers of the Irish government and perhaps through the blood of some members of the Irish government to get their freedom. Wow. Yep. He's right. So, yeah, he he says that we're not going to stop until we have full independence. And so if you accept this, all you're doing is putting Irish lives in the way of that. Yeah. Man. So, as you can imagine, it's pretty hard to reconcile these positions. And both the government and the military split over the treaty issue. The provisional government and the military which sided with the government formed the National Army to replace the Irish Republican Army, while the anti-treaty side retained the title of IRA. And what then commenced was the Irish Civil War, which ended up actually being much more destructive and had a lot more casualties than the Irish War of Independence. Man. So it, it all started um, on April 14th, 1922, is kind of when the war started. There had been some isolated skirmishes between like local pro and anti-treaty groups, but nothing, nothing big. But on the 14th of April, 1922, hundreds of anti-treaty IRA militants occupied the four courts, which were a series of government buildings in a big complex in central Dublin. These Republicans wanted to spark a new armed confrontation with the British, which they hoped would unite the two factions of the IRA against their common enemy, the British. They thought if they can do something high-profile enough that the British are going to feel the need to intervene, that will put an end to all this because then everybody will be against the British. Again, yeah, that makes sense. However, for those who were on the side of the free state and the treaty and really wanted to work within this uh, this parameter of, of the, the Irish free state to make a self-governing Irish republic, this act was a rebellion, which would have to be put down. However, they recognized, especially Michael Collins, who's kind of calling the shots at this point, recognized that firing the first shots of a civil war was not something to be done lightly, and could easily backfire in public opinion. So he decided to just sort of ignore the IRA in those buildings in central Dublin and kind of leave them alone to hang out there. <laughs> just like, because the, you know, the, the government of the free state is still very much being formed. Like during the whole war of independence, the government of the free state was like happening in back rooms and stuff because there were, there was no real government because you couldn't, have a government in one place because the British would just come and, you know, arrest everyone and kill you. Right. So they didn't really have, like, a super developed government. So, you know, if the IRA wants to just sit in those government buildings that aren't really being used anyway, just leave them there. Yeah. Don't start and the that's Civil what, War. That's what they did. They left them there for a few months. But then in June, a British field marshal named Henry Wilson, who was an advisor to the government of Northern Ireland was assassinated by some IRA faction in London. And although no no one took responsibility for this, no group of IRA in Ireland said we did this, that fat baby-faced fuck Winston Churchill decided that it must have been the anti-treaty IRA, and I mean, in all likelihood, it very well might have been, but nobody actually claimed responsibility, but he decided it was them, and so he told Michael Collins that if he didn't dislodge the IRA from their hold in Dublin that he would send a full military expedition with tanks, planes, artillery, etc. to subdue the IRA in Dublin. Fuck that guy. Aha! And so, since that would have given the anti-treaty IRA exactly what they wanted, 
a British invasion, Collins agreed to deal with it himself. And so using artillery and weapons supplied by the British, hmm, maybe those anti-treaty guys had a point about this, yeah. uh, Collins assaulted the four courts after three days of shelling. At some point during this, the National Archives of Ireland, which were part of the complex, were blown up. Whether this was intentional or not, or who did it, or who was responsible, there, there's no no clear answer. Everybody kind of blames other people. But at some point during this, the National Archives of Ireland got blown up. Good God. Yeah, um, which is unfortunate. And the anti-treaty garrison surrendered after those days of shelling and then uh, an assault by the government forces. But battles continued all over Dublin as IRA groups took up arms against the Free State National Army. And among those killed in the fighting at this phase in Dublin was Cahill Brewer, who was who had been the first president of the newly formed Irish Doyle when it first came together and declared independence. He was its first president before he um, stepped down in favor of Eamon de Valera. So, you know, these are their senior people involved on both sides here. Wow. And so, yeah, the first the first president of the uh, the Irish, basically the Irish Congress was killed fighting with the in the anti-treaty IRA during this time. Okay. It's pretty sad. Go. It's yeah. pretty sad, honestly. Um, so when war broke out, the anti-treaty forces actually outnumbered the, the staters, as they were called, the National Army of the Free State. Mm-hmm. But with the government and military command structure in the hands of the staters, the IRA anti-treaty forces lacked organization and coherent strategy because they didn't really have a national sort of structure to rely on. And in addition to this, they only had the rifles and pistols and shotguns with which they'd been waging the guerrilla campaign against the British during the War of Independence. They didn't have, you know, the equipment and vehicles and supplies of a modern army. Mm -hmm. Right. Collins and the Staters, on the other hand, were able to use their better organizations, since they sort of kept control of the government, to quickly raise a number of troops to match the the IRA, since they started out with less troops but a better organization. And they also had an extra special friend called the British Empire. Yeah. Which supplied huge amounts of artillery, aircraft, armored cars, machine guns, rifles, ammunition, everything for uh, the free state government. They also recruited heavily from the Irish who had served in the British Army during World War One, although a decent share of those veterans um, went to the joined the IRA instead. You know, I now know why they made a movie about Michael Collins because I knew vaguely that he was involved with the IRA and all that stuff, and then I was I saw a video or a, a movie starring Liam Neeson called Michael Collins, and I was like, why would they make a movie that's like, like uh, against the narrative? And now I know it's because he ended up betraying the whole movement. Yeah, yeah. that's cer- certainly in the perspective of the anti-treaty forces. Yeah. yeah. Um, so although the IRA held the majority of Ireland and many towns and cities, their lack of equipment for conventional war meant that the armor and artillery of the Free State Army easily took cities from them. You know, although they they put up determined resistance in many places, nowhere were the Republicans able to defeat the regular armies with the modern British Army equipment and vehicles that were being brought against them. Because they just, you know, they had the weapons of a guerrilla uprising. 
So when you roll armored cars through a town, there's not a whole lot you can do. So even though they started out controlling most of Ireland and most of the cities, because the majority of the IRA had gone had gone with the anti-treaty IRA rather than with the National Army, they soon lost control of all the cities because they had nothing with which to put up a real defense against the material that the Free State Army had. Right. I mean, they just don't. They don't have artillery. You know. That's yeah. They don't have the... artillery. They don't have tanks. You know. They they don't have really anything to deal with tanks. Yeah. So naturally, that. in light of that, it ends up once again being a guerrilla war. Okay. The, um, the summer of 1922 actually saw very heavy casualties inflicted on the Free Staters by IRA ambushes, including none other than Michael Collins, who was killed in an IRA ambush in August. Yeah, get so it's, what it's, you fucking deserve. It's, just, it's sad because the, the people on both sides of this all had fought together just literally a couple years earlier in their Irish War for Independence. It's so stupid. It's ugh. They shouldn't have yeah. done the treaty. That was a bad move. Yep. So by the winter, um, the Free State, however, had succeeded in breaking up many of the larger IRA groups because they the IRA lacked the supplies and the you know the infrastructure to stay in a cohesive military unit over the winter. So they kept having to sort of divide up into smaller and smaller groups and go to other places. And by 1923, there were pretty much no IRA groups that were really well organized or large enough to actually engage in military action so they were pretty much reduced to sabotaging roads and train tracks and stuff like that and um the anti-treaty republican government which Eamon de valera had set up didn't actually hold authority over any territory it was sort of a government in hiding because despite the fact there were lots of people who supported it they they weren't able to ever make a stand anywhere because they didn't have anything with which to fight the supplies of the free staters yeah Wow. So, yeah, as the war wound down, anger on both sides boiled into rage, which overflowed into increasing brutality. The staters began executing captured IRA soldiers and also imposing sentences through military tribunals instead of citizen courts. Sounds kind of like the British, doesn't it? It does. (laughs) Hmm. And in response, the IRA started initiating targeted killings of free state politicians and officials. Classic IRA. (laughs) So the day after the IRA killed Sean Hales, who was a member of the Doyle, um, so like a congressman basically, the Free State sent a message by executing four IRA men, one from each of the four traditional regions of Ireland. Okay. Another notorious incident was when the Free State Army tied nine Republicans to a landmine and detonated it. For God's sake. One of them actually survived and and eventually became a member of parliament in Ireland like decades later, but Holy eight of them, crap. eight of them were blown to pieces. Wow. After that, the IRA started killing male family members of free state officials whom they considered responsible. So it's like, you know, you, you do something that indirectly contributes to the execution of some IRA prisoners. And then the next day your dad gets shot, that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, they also, um, started, the IRA did, started targeting the estates of the landed class, who were mostly Anglo, Irish, and Protestant. And if you want to know why that is, listen to the previous two episodes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, during the war, uh, 192 estates, country estates, were burned by the IRA. It's kind of easy to see why they viewed the um, the landed class as enemies, because not only did the old landed aristocracy include a lot of officials in the free state government, 
But they were also the direct successors of the incredibly oppressive system which had terrorized Ireland for centuries, and they'd of course also been on the side of the British crown through pretty much all of Ireland's struggle for freedom. So it's easy to see why the old landed elite would not have been looked on favorably and why their houses might have been burned down. <laughs> maybe. I mean, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Yep. So a lot of, yeah, 192 country estates were burned by the IRA. Um, when the anti-treaty leader, Liam Lynch, was killed in April of 1923, it was pretty clear that the war was basically over at that point, mm -hmm. and his successor, Frank Aiken, negotiated a ceasefire. And Dave Valera supported this ceasefire and actually issued a statement to the IRA, which I want to read to you. Soldiers of the Republic, Legion of the Rear Guard, the Republic can no longer be defended successfully by your arms. Further sacrifice of life would now be in vain, and the continuance of the struggle in arms unwise in the national interest and prejudicial to the future of our cause. Military victory must be allowed to rest for the moment with those who have destroyed the Republic. Oh, man. Yeah, so there's a lot of resentment for the against the Free Staters. Yeah. So after the treaty, um, the Free State imprisoned a huge number of IRA members, over 10,000. Um, okay. One result of this was that the pro-treaty factions won a significant victory over the anti-treaty faction in the elections, which isn't exactly surprising since most of the leaders and most of the sort of active members of the anti-treaty side were in prison, so you can hardly expect them to run an effective election campaign. Right. Um, and after this, the rest of the 20s were actually a very low-key time for most of Ireland as the free state government worked on building up an actual like government apparatus, as we talked about, since they didn't have that, and mm -hmm. sort of managing the state, um, figuring out, you know, what who who was where, who was supposed to have jurisdiction over what, you know, founding public services and doing all that, um, just sort of building their little state. Uh, most of the anti-treaty prisoners were released within a few years, um, and it was pretty chill for the rest of the 20s, except for one big jolt, which was the assassination of the Justice Minister, Kevin O'Higgins, by an underground IRA faction in 1927, which was done in revenge for his involvement with the summary executions of IRA soldiers during the war. So, so they... Who was this guy? Justice he's Minister? A, yeah, so he's the Justice Minister of the Irish Free State, and he gets assassinated by the IRA by some IRA faction, because as you see, the IRA is very decentralized. Right. Some IRA faction kills him, and they issue a statement saying it was in revenge for his involvement with summary executions of IRA during the Civil War. Okay, okay, okay. Yep. Um, but other than that, like things were actually pretty stable and calm in Ireland. <laughs> the big issue at the time that people was sort of hanging over was the partition of Northern Ireland, which had been agreed in the treaty that Northern Ireland could opt out. The Irish had expected that the Boundary Commission, which was tasked to draw the map, would probably transfer a lot of territories from Northern Ireland into the Irish Republic, since they were overwhelmingly Irish, Catholic, and nationalist, as we talked about. There are hundreds of thousands of Irish Catholic nationalists who were on the other side of the border in Northern Ireland, and likewise, there is a smaller but still very significant number of Ulster loyalists who are technically in Ireland, not Northern Ireland. 
Right. So people okay. thought they would sort of work that out. But instead, the commission focused on topographical rather than demographic divisions. Like, they just kind of thought in terms of, like, you know, law jurisdictions and rivers and, like, natural boundaries. They didn't really pay any attention to the people who were living in there when they were forming this this ideal division. Mm-hmm. And so... The stuff they came up with, um, they issued like a preliminary report about the changes, and it ended up being very, very strongly opposed, both by the Nationalists of the South and the Ulster Unionists of the North, and everybody hated it. So, instead of continuing with that, since it seemed unlikely that this committee was going to really be trusted by anyone, they just decided to keep the original line, which had divided southern ireland from northern ireland in previous british legislation so that line which puts a few hundred thousand irish catholics in northern ireland and a hundred thousand ulster protestants in southern ireland gotcha yeah um the irish of republic opposed this they weren't they weren't really liking that because it you know cut off several hundred thousand irish catholics up in the north Mm -hmm. but the british persuaded them to take the deal by agreeing to remove that debt obligation which Ireland had agreed to in the treaty. Mm. they So if you take this deal, you will no longer be responsible for, you know, whatever percent of the British national debt it was. Yeah. Which, you know, when you're just starting a country out, that, that that's a pretty big carrot to offer to take away all that debt. Yeah. So they agreed to it. All right. I can't imagine that this border issue will cause problems in the future. Can you? No, I don't see it. There's no border problems anywhere. Borders yeah, there's, are there's, fake. There's no way this will be an issue. No. Not, not at all. No, not no. at all. <laughs> so, although some of the most radical Sinn Féin and IRA factions still refused to participate in the government of the Irish Republic, since they didn't recognize it as the legitimate government, since it was the free state government, mm-hmm. most anti-treaty figures had resumed political involvement by the late 20s. And in 1932... The party which had been formed by the anti-treaty politicians, Fianna Foyle, which was led by Eamon de Valera again, gathered enough support to actually win control of the Irish government in the elections of 32. Okay. So the anti-treaty people have now taken control of the tr- government that was created by the treaty. Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so they immediately ended all the residual policies against anti-treaty Republicans and legalized the IRA again, since it had been outlawed by the Free State, and they released Republican prisoners who were being held in prison for various anti-government activities over the past several years. I see this as an absolute win. (laughs) So, (laughs) this uh, suddenly legitimizing again the IRA obviously wouldn't sit especially well with who? The Free Staters the people who'd fought for the free state side in the war. Yeah. So the 30s saw some sporadic violence between IRA veterans and veterans of the free state national army. Although it was mostly sort of riots and vandalism and like, you know, beatings, there were a few like actual shootings where people died, but it was mostly the kind of just civil unrest that we've seen. And this went on for several years until finally De Valera banned the big pro-treaty paramilitary group, which was called the Blue Shirts, after they threatened to attack the Doyle. Okay. So yeah, threatening to attack the uh, the Congress, not a great way to avoid being banned by the government. 
But in a few a few years after that, he actually once again banned the IRA, which oh. had grown increasingly involved in leftist political activities. And so, like, they'd murdered a landlord. They were getting in gunfights with the police. Oh God! They they were yeah they were becoming problematic. Even though you know Valera had been one of the leaders of the anti-treaty movement, the IRA groups had sort of strayed from that and had gotten much more into leftist politics specifically, which he viewed as dangerous to the stability of Ireland. So he banned them again. Okay. So now both the radical anti-treaty and the radical pro-treaty groups are both banned. Well, that, I, 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 don't, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So then World War II hits mm. and Ireland didn't really consider it to be be in their best interest to be cannon fodder for British offensives like they had been in World War One. So, despite being technically part of the British Empire as part of the Free State, the Irish Republic remained neutral during the war, although there was some sort of backroom cooperation with the Allies, um, you know, allowing them to use certain Irish resources and sharing information and stuff. They, remain, they remained officially neutral throughout the whole of World War II. Okay. But... With the British busy in the war, the now outlawed IRA, which still considered itself to be the legitimate government of the Irish Republic, since they didn't recognize the, tr the government formed by the treaty, right. they thought this would be a great time to try to force the British out of Northern Ireland, which would pave the way for the real Irish Republic encompassing the whole island, which they wanted. <laughs> real I Irish Republic has never been tried. <laughs> <laughs> and so on January 12th, 1939, they issued a proclamation um, to directed to the British government, which I want to read for you because it's it, it's just it's great. Okay. I have the honor to inform you that the government of the Irish Republic, having as its first duty towards its people the establishment and maintenance of peace and order here, demand the withdrawal of all British armed forces stationed in Ireland. The occupation of our territory by troops of another nation and the persistent subvention here of activities directly against the express national will and in the interests of a foreign power prevent the expansion and development of our institution in consonance with our social needs and purposes and must cease. So that is, they want the British out of Northern Ireland. Good. And they want the British out of the treaty ports and all of that. Great. So... The um, And then they continue on, read the rest of the proclamation. The government of the Irish Republic believe that a period of four days is sufficient for your government to signify its intentions in the matter of the military evacuation and for the issue of your declaration of abdication in respect to our country. Our government reserves the right of appropriate action without further notice if, upon the expiration of this period of grace, these conditions remain unfulfilled. Gotcha. I, I love how like formal this is, since this is literally like an under you know an underground paramilitary movement. Yeah, and they're sending this letter like to to the British government. Yeah, it's it's kind of funny uh, in a way. Um, yep. So the British, of course, just ignored this. What yeah. else are they going to do? And so four days later, a second proclamation was given by the underground IRA on the twenty third day of April in the year nineteen sixteen in the city of Dublin. Seven men who were representatives in spirit and outlook and purpose of the Irish nation that had never yielded to nor accepted the British conquest 
set their humble and almost unknown names to the foregoing document that has passed into history, making the names of the seven signatories immortal. These signatures were sealed with the blood of the immortal seven, and of many others who followed them into one of the most gallant fights in the history of the world, and the Irish nation rose from shame to honor, from humiliation to pride, from slavery to freedom. So, as we were talking about, even though the 1916 rebellion didn't accomplish much militarily, it left an indelible mark on sort of the Irish national conscience. Yep. Like just that, look look at the way it's being talked about here. Yeah, that's the that's the morale pill that Ireland needed that would last, you know, forever basically. Um Yeah. And you know, even so even once um really for the whole 20th century, no matter what political position was being advocated, almost every political party in some way tries to sort of tie themselves to the heroes of 1916 because that is sort of seen as the foundational moment of modern Ireland even if it didn't really accomplish anything from a military perspective right yeah anyway and so I'm going to continue with the IRA statement unfortunately because men were foolish enough to treat with an armed enemy within their gates the English won the peace Weakness and treachery caused a resumption of the war, and the old English tactics of divide and conquer were exploited to the fullest extent. Partition was introduced, and the country divided into two parts with two separate parliaments subject to and controlled by the British government. The armed forces of England still occupy six of our counties in the north, and reserve the right in time of war or strained relations to reoccupy the ports which they have just evacuated in the southern part of Ireland. Ireland is still tied, as she has been for centuries past, to take part in England's wars. In the six counties, a large number of Republican soldiers are held prisoner by England. Further weakness on the part of some of our people, broken faith and make-believe, have postponed the enthronement of the living Republic. But the proclamation of Easter Week and the Declaration of Independence stand and must stand forever. No man, no matter how far he has fallen away from his national faith, has dared to repudiate them. They constitute the rallying center for the unbought manhood of Ireland in the fight that must be made to make them effective and to redeem the nation's self-respect that was abandoned by a section of our people in 1923. The time has come to make that fight. There is no need to redeclare the Republic of Ireland now or in the future. There is no need to reaffirm the Declaration of Irish Independence. But the hour has come for the supreme effort to make them both effective. So, in the name of the unconquered dead and the faithful living, we pledge ourselves to that task. We call upon England to withdraw her armed forces, her civilian officials and institutions and representatives of all kind from every part of Ireland as an essential preliminary to arrangements for peace and friendship between the two countries. And we call upon the people of all Ireland at home and in exile to assist us in the effort we are about to make in God's name to compel that evacuation and to enthrone the Republic of Ireland. Man, there it is. There's the, there's the, the opposite of the, uh, treaty guys, (laughs) you know, that's funny. Yeah. So no, it's, it's a very impressive document for a, at this point, not especially impressive group. Like this is, yeah, the IRA is, outlawed, tiny, not especially effective at anything, but they issued this document, which I think is extremely moving. 
So, following this declaration, the IRA began a campaign of sabotage and bombing around Britain, which they called the S-Plan for sabotage, (laughs) targeting infrastructure such as power stations, train tracks, and hubs of commercial or industrial activity. So the idea is they want to create enough chaos in Britain, which is already busy with World War II, that Britain will be forced to withdraw from Northern Ireland because they you know, are stretched too thin. Yeah, makes sense. Yep. So, and because, and also, the, um, Northern Ireland has its own share of violence at this point, because remember those few hundred thousand Irish Catholic nationalists who are stuck up there? Mm-hmm. They're not exactly happy. So, right now we're just talking about the Republic of Ireland, but Northern Ireland also has a lot of, you know, violence going on between different groups. So, it is a it is an effective it is a potentially effective method if you can sort of stretch England enough that it's going to give up and withdraw. Yeah, gotcha. Yep. So um, the effects of this whole IRA bombing campaign were actually pretty marginal, however, and oh. many of the attacks didn't even really happen because they were prevented by the British before they could cause their intended effect. Over the course of this campaign, which lasted a year and a half, there were ten people killed, which for a year and a half of bombing. It doesn't seem like a lot. No. Um, the IRA also reached out to Germany for help with its campaign, since the Germans obviously had good reason to want to cripple the British. Hmm. And the Germans were initially interested, since this seems like a possible good way to sort of hit the British where they're not expecting it. But they soon found that the efforts of the IRA were disappointing and ineffectual, so they abandoned any hope of real collaboration against the British. And here's a nice little memo from German intelligence to the IRA which I want to read to you. Should I do a German accent? Can you do one? Because I suck at German. We'll see. <clears throat> the Falzgraf section very urgently requests its Irish friends and IRA members to be so good as to make considerably better efforts to carry out the S-Plan, which they received sometime last summer, and to be more effectual against the military as opposed to civilian objectives. <laughs> okay, Hans. <laughs> So yeah, that's a that's a pretty solid diss, isn't it? Yeah, it's like you guys. Yeah, guys, we'll help you out if. Uh, if <laughs> Very you... urgently requests them to make considerably better efforts <laughs> and to be more effectual. Like, geez, that sounds like something that one of my professors would write on an exam. <laughs> Man. Yeah. Um. So this whole thing didn't really go anywhere. Yeah. Dave Valera, you know, believed that this whole campaign was a threat to the security and stability of the Republic because, you know, they're attacking Britain, they're trying to get Germany involved, they're doing all this stuff. So he had all known IRA members in Ireland interned and had several of them executed for involvement in the S-Plan. So Dave Valera had come a long way since his anti-treaty days, and at this point he has no patience for paramilitary nonsense Hmm. since it was in political action that he believed, you know, his goals could better be accomplished. Gotcha. Which Mm. is, you know, quite a development from the whole anti-treaty days. Yeah. And in 1948, political action did in fact happen. Uh, The Irish government passed the Republic of Ireland Act, which would come into force in 1949, and which finally severed the connection of Ireland to Great Britain and took it out of the British Commonwealth. And the British Parliament, for their part, passed the Ireland Act of 1949, which acknowledged that Ireland had, quote, ceased to be a part of his majesty's domains 
Not that they really had much choice after all this. Like, trying to trying to prevent the Irish from doing this was probably not really possible. Just a waste especially, of time. Especially right after World War II. Like, they're losing their empire all over the world. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, like, I mean, I just don't get this. Like, I have to dominate this country. I, I can't work with it and, you know, let it be its best. I have to control it, you know? I, yep. I just don't get that. Yeah, it's it's pretty crazy. Yeah. So, that Ireland was then um, actually, for the first time, independent. Um, although it was blocked for several years by a veto from the Soviet Union... Ireland eventually succeeded in joining the United Nations in 1955. I don't know why the Soviet Union was vetoing them. Um, like I knew this episode's already going long, so I didn't I didn't spend a lot of time trying to figure it out. But for some reason, the Soviet Union kept vetoing Ireland getting admission to the UN. I'm I'm sure there's a good reason, but I don't know what it is. Probably because they valued freedom. <laughs> who who even knows? Yeah, who know, who so can know the mind of the Soviet Union? Truly. So, after 800 years, the south of Ireland was finally a truly independent country. Woohoo! But what about that pesky border issue and the whole Northern Ireland thing? That couldn't possibly end up being a major problem, could it? Mm-hmm. Who knows? We might, we might have to do another episode later to find out. But for the moment, we're going to close here with a actually independent Irish Republic in 1949. And what a ride it's been. What a ride it's been indeed, George. Uh, I gotta say, it got a little a little bit tricky with the IRA there in the in the middle. Um, yeah, no, it's it's a lot of it's hard to Yeah. It's hard to figure out who who's what and who basically it's like anything else in history it's real once the more you read about it the harder it becomes to label good guys and bad guys except for the british they're always the bad guys it's just a question <laughs> of who the good guys are yeah it's just a question um, of yeah who are the good guys and are there good guys but the british being the bad guys as far as i'm concerned is pretty universal yeah um that's funny uh yeah so I don't know. I have nothing else to add. Do you want to go to the surface? Yeah, I think we better. Um, we also better figure out, uh, yeah, when we're going to do part four. Yeah. <laughs> Gaelic Boogaloo. <laughs> <laughs> so, I don't know when, but that will be incoming at some point, dear listeners. Okay. That's good to know. Oh, man. So, yeah, let's, let's head out. Off. Off we go. <laughs> George, what's on the agenda for you? Oh, you know, Aaron, pretty much the usual. Figuring out what to do with my life. Figuring out how to avoid becoming another depressing social statistic. And generally trying to make sense of the future. Well, damn, son. You know, nothing out of the ordinary, like I said. What about you? Uh, I am moving across the country, and it's happening in six days. And I am so excited. But that's about it. That's about it. Oh. That's exciting. Uh, how long of a drive is it, anyway? Oh, where I'm going, about 20 hours. How many burritos is that? Like, uh, 16? I don't eat burritos on the road because I'm not a psychopath. 
I mean, it gets a little bit challenging when you're driving and you're eating a burrito and you're trying to find the right song on Spotify, like, and you're trying to, you know, unwrap a Mamba Chew and you're trying to open your can of White Monster, like, it get, and you're going 90 miles an hour. Like, it gets it gets pretty wild, I'm not going to lie. Modern but life that's is why a I drive struggle. For, what? That's why I drive at four. That's why I drive at four a.m. mostly because I don't have to worry about killing anyone else, only myself. <laughs> Which would solve all your ills. <laughs> oh, that was a that was a hell of a note to close that on. <laughs> well, uh, and speaking of, I think it's time to bring the show to an end for today. If you hate us, you're probably British. Really, probably are. Uh, so consider funding the show by becoming a patron on Patreon.com. Or if Patreon is not your thing, drop us a little tip in Venmo. That's at WTADP. Everything is appreciated. If you've been enjoying the Irish series, let us know. Uh, you can reach out to us on Twitter, Facebook, uh, and even if you send us a Venmo, you can include a message, which is kind of nifty. And of course, please engage with us on all social media if you like something, or if you hated something, or if you want to suggest a topic, or if you want to tell Aaron... Wait, this isn't supposed to be in the script! With all that being said, we'll close out and let the sound the, let the sound of a song for Ireland play you out. Walking all the day near tall towers where falcons build their nests. Silver winged they fly, they know the call of freedom in their breasts. Saw black head against the sky where twisted rocks they run to the sea Living on your western shore Saw summer sunsets Asked for more I stood by your Atlantic sea And I sang a song for Ireland Drinking all the day in old pubs where fiddlers love to play Saw one touch the bow He played a reel which seemed so grand and gay Stood on Dingle Beach and cast In wild foam we found Atlantic bass Living on your western shore Saw summer sunsets Asked for more I stood by your Atlantic sea And sang a song for Ireland
talking all the day with true friends who try to make you stay telling jokes and the news singing songs to while the time away watch the galway salmon run like silver dancing darting in the sun living on your western shore saw some sunsets asked for more i stood by your atlantic sea and i sang a song for ireland dreaming in the night i saw a land where no one had to fight waking in your dawn i saw you crying in the morning light sleeping where the falcons fly they twist and turn all in your air blue sky living on your western shore saw summer sunsets asked for more I stood by your Atlantic sea and I sang a song for Ireland.